What is a monetized mindset? How does it impact your financial security? How does that help you deal with what happens when what happens happens? Welcome your host, Bart Merrill. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Monetize Your Mindset podcast. This is where we take a look at how to create financial security by monetizing those things that you already know. Today, we're going to sit down with Sean Knutson. He's with Innovative Canine Academy. We're going to talk about a lot of things from PTSD to dog training to personal development, a lot of things we're going to cover. But the main thing we're going to look at is how he went from suffering from PTSD to training your pooch. One of the things people miss, a lot of people talk about monetizing the things that they like to do or the things that they're passionate about. But what about monetizing those things that we need to do? Sean had PTSD. He got him a dog to help him get relief from PTSD. And now he went to training his pooch. So it's something that he needed to do. He trained his own dog and he took that a step further. To now he trains other people's dog and created a side hustle at first and transitioned into a business that paid him more than his full-time job. And that's what we do here at Monetize Your Mindset. Before we get started today, I wanted to take a little moment and talk about TaxBot. If you're going to have a side hustle or if you're going to work at your own business, one of the things you want to take advantage of is the tax breaks that it allows you. When I got married, my wife saw all these boxes of receipts because I've never had a real job, never never done the real job thing. I've always just worked for myself, found different ways to make money. And so when me and my wife got married, which is in about a week, I guess it's 10 days from today, we will be married for 20 years. But when we first got married, she took a look at all these boxes full of receipts. And she would ask me, can I throw these away? Like, nope. Well, what about this one? It's like six years old. I says, nope, I need to keep track of them for seven years. What TaxBot does for you is it gets rid of your boxes, your boxes of receipts. I take my take one of my associates out to lunch. I can take a picture of my receipt, save it in the cloud, and throw the receipt in the garbage. Or I can get mileage tracking so I don't have to keep my log. It, it tracks it digitally anytime my truck's moving. I just go in on and put the details of what the trip was for. TaxBot is something that I recommend for people if they're in their own business, if they have their, they want to start a side hustle, they want to start their own business. It's way affordable. I am a, an affiliate of this company and I really love their product. If you're interested in TaxBot, go to bartmerrill.com, look in the resources page and you can click on the link there and go get it. It's really easy to sign up. I think they give you a free trial. So go have a look, see if it's something that's good for you. All right, now let's get on with today's podcast and let's welcome Sean. All right, welcome Sean to the Monetize Your Mindset podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, Sean, let's get into this really quick about you. You're, we're going to be talking about dogs today and give people a little bit of idea of what can be possible if you have a passion for dogs. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big things that we see in my industry is that people don't realize what potential dogs have. So there's a lot of trainers that just 
don't do a really good job with dogs. And so people see that and just think that's normal for dogs. One of the things that we want to show people is that the full potential that dogs have as, uh, you know, doing protection work, service dogs, therapy dogs, uh, all kinds of working dogs, as well as pets at home, that they, they just have a lot of potential to do a lot of good things for our families. Right. And here at Monetize Your Mindset, we talk about creating financial security by monetizing the stuff that we already know or do. And there's many ways to monetize your your mutt. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys on Facebook. Caruso, he's a he's a dash hound. I don't think I am, nope. And they they're from I think they're from Canada, like Montreal or somewhere in the colder areas. And they would dress their dog just because it was cold. Yeah. To go for a walk. And it's a little yeah. wiener dog they started taking pictures of the dog and they would post the pictures of their dog in their different outfits. And pretty soon it became a fad and they had him in, they'll put him in a cop car and he'll be racing the cop or a fire engine. And he has dragging a hose. It's just so funny. The things that they've done and they created a Caruso calendar. They got another one Oakley. So now they're, they have a pair. And so they're at a job site, like construction workers, digging holes you know while the other guys are standing there with the shovels just so many things that they've done to monetize their dog they have a calendar they have leggings yeah uh coffee cups so many things that they're merchandising because of what they've done with their dog absolutely now we're gonna go a different area with you you're not about dressing up your mutt give people some background about you okay so I started, uh, I was started out doing construction. I was a general contractor in 2008. I'm also in the Utah National Guard. In 2008, I actually, I was developing some land to put homes on it. I had just dug the first basement. So I was sitting on the track hoe in the middle of digging out the first basement of the first house we were going to put in. And I got the call that my unit was being deployed to Iraq. So I sat there. I got off the phone, sat there for an hour on this tractor looking at this land that I had just purchased. And it took, you know, I did the zoning, got the, all the approvals, the, the building permits, everything. And then I had to call my wife and tell her, hey, uh, we're going to Iraq. So I don't know what we're going to do with this land. But we decided to keep the land. And I went to Iraq and we were just going to make the payments on it. And the bubble had not burst yet in 2008. So I actually left in 2007. I had all kinds of people calling, wanting to buy this land. So finally I talked to my wife and said, Hey, let's just sell it. We'll buy some more land and just start over when I get back. One of the best things that happened to me because the guy that bought it still has only put one house on it. None of it has been developed yet. And uh, we were able to get out of that. But I came back and the economy was just, you know, terrible. This was August of 2008. And it just was not good. There was construction industry was was terrible. Uh, No one was making money. So I used my military experience. I, I went I actually went to work for a federal uh, law enforcement. I was on a federal SWAT team. I did that for about eight years. While I was doing that, I started working with my brother-in-law who is a, he's always been into dogs. He's been training dogs since he was a kid. When I got back from Iraq, I was having some issues with PTSD, some anger, some different things that I was dealing with. And I got this puppy and I started training it. My brother-in-law helped me with the training. One of the biggest things that helped me 
deal with my PTSD and some of the things that I was dealing with was the fact that like my brother-in-law kept telling me, if the puppy makes a mistake, it's my fault. It's not the puppy's fault. I either went too fast, my timing was off, I expected too much, whatever it was, it was my fault, not the puppy's fault. And that really helped me to deal with uh, my family, civilians, other people that I was, you know, the, the, uh, the, the environment around me, just being out in public. It really helped me to realize that, hey, it's not other people's fault, it's my fault. So that really relaxed me and I really enjoyed working with the puppy. So I, I just got more and more into it, uh, kept working with my brother-in-law, got another puppy, started to do some sport things. So I was I was still with, the, it was a federal SWAT team on a military installation, so I was still doing that. And I did that for, for eight years and just kept getting more and more into training puppies, training for sport, training for fun, and started to get into doing some competitions. One day, my partner and I, who's my now partner, my brother-in-law, we were driving. We talked about, hey, why don't we make this a business? Like We both love it. We enjoy it. We're good at it. Let's make it a business. So we came up with a business plan, a business model, and we we started out. I was working part-time. He was working part-time. Then he went full-time, and we just kept getting busier until we got to the point that, hey, uh, he said to me, I think you should come full-time with me. So I, I left working for the military full-time and went and trained dogs full-time. That was back in 2000, the end of 2013. And we've okay. been doing that ever since. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your deployment. Okay. When you did that, you had to pretty much drop everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much of a financial burden did that cause? For me, it was pretty considerable. Most soldiers were actually making more on deployment because it's tax-free. There's some added things that they pay you. Uh, for me, it was a pay cut. So it was very difficult. Fortunately for me at the time, I did not have any employees. I had actually gotten rid of all my employees previous to this. And it was just me. And I was planning to be a general contractor and subcontract right. everything out. So I right. wasn't going to have employees at the time. Okay. And so that was one thing that benefited me. I didn't have to let anybody go or anything. But it definitely was, uh, it was a struggle financially. And then it was just luck that you were able to sell that. Yeah. That pretty much saved your bacon. Absolutely. If you would have came back and been in the middle of the downturn trying to yeah. do that, that would have been. Yeah. I mean, we probably would have lost it. I don't know, with, with nobody to buy any of the homes. Right. And with the construction industry down, I would have, I don't know how I could have continued to make the payments on it. Right. Okay. Now, when you were over there, did you interact with dogs while you were over there at all? A little bit. So we were, I was on a uh, prison camp. It's Camp Buka. It's in the southern part of Iraq. We had, it's, we had 30,000 detainees there that we were, uh, we were guarding. And we had canines, uh, military working dogs. They could only come out at night in the summertime because it was so hot during the day. Wow. But like when new detainees came, we'd have the, the working dogs would kind of go up and down the line and bark at them and kind of keep them in line. And they were, they were uh, afraid of black dogs. And so we had some German shepherds, some Malinois. And so it really kind of helped with them to keep them very calm and not try to fight us or anything like that. Cause they were intimidated by the dogs. 
And then you said you came back with a little bit of PTSD. Give us a little bit of detail on that if you could. Yep. So basically, and, and I'm, I'm glad you asked this because one of the things I really like to share with people is that, you know, there's a lot of people with mental health issues. If you have some mental health issues, go get some help. Go. This is something that, you know, I thought I could fix everything on my own. And I learned that, you know, I had to get some help. I had to have somebody explain to me what is going on and follow some steps to improve the way that I thought about things and the way that I react to situations. A little more feedback. I came from a home that was very abusive. Uh, I had a very physically, emotionally, mentally abusive father. So when I went to Iraq, it it's not even so much the things that happened to a, me in Iraq. It was those things triggered a lot of things from my childhood that I hadn't ever worked through. And so when I came back, I was having some very severe reactions. I, we, we had apartments behind us and somebody shot a firecracker and craziest. Like I was like nuts. I, I jumped out the window. I didn't even go to the door. I jumped out the window and I ran and jumped over the fence and started screaming at people who was that? I'm swearing. I'm like, and everybody's, and it was college apartments because it was, we lived next to a, a college and these college students just disappeared. And I'm walking around like a crazy person screaming who, cause that sounded like a bomb. Right. I got on the phone with the police and I was pretty stupid, but it was right after I got back and I just was just mentally gone at that time. And I said, you better get an effing cop here before I kill somebody. And uh, they, they showed up and they asked me, you know, they, they, by the time I was back to my house, they just came and they knew who I was and they, they just wanted to make sure I was okay. Like, Hey, we know, you know, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And, and just things like that would happen to just trigger me. And I just kind of lose it. That's where working with dogs really helped that. Hey, it's, they're just kids being dumb. They're not trying to cause me to have a reaction. They're not doing this on purpose. They're not targeting me. Right. They're just being dumb. I would have probably done the same thing when I was a college student, but just that one concept that it's, it's my fault. It's not the dog's fault. It's not that student's fault is the one thing that really helped me before I was, before I went, made the decision to go to get some counseling. That was what really helped me to work through some of those issues. So in, on the 4th of July and around those times here in Utah, we have the 24th of July as well. I see posts on Facebook all the time about worry about your veteran who has PTSD or even worry about your dog who's scared with, or, you know, worry about everybody else's dog. And I had a, I had a Roddy that she was terrified of fireworks and I've only had one that has been scared of fireworks, but she was terrified. She had come down here in the basement where we are actually even in this room. And this is where she would hide during the fireworks and I, I discount them, these things on Facebook saying one of my favorite sayings and people will hate me for saying this is suck it up, buttercup. Right. I'm like, okay, I have a dog that is scared of fireworks and I handle it. Yeah. So it's my job to handle my situation. Right. Yeah. I'm very, you know, let people enjoy life, but we do need to kind of consider that when we do have vet- veterans because you have something that triggered you. Yeah. It's not uncommon. I've also heard about people that they, they, when they come back from Iraq, that they're very over aware of their surroundings as they go out in public. Yep, absolutely. 
because they've been trained that they need to they need to be they're watching people and any any strange movement they react yeah and so that's kind of the stuff that you you dealt with yep, when you absolutely. came back yeah the the interesting thing is over in Iraq explosions didn't bother bother me we'd get you know mortar fire rockets things shot at us on a pretty regular basis and over there it was you accepted it it was just part of life never bothered me but when i looked around at at Iraq and and what we were doing and and all of the things that we were seeing it's like this disease that was like spreading and i was like just this feeling that one what are we doing here what are we accomplishing and as you get to know some of the people in the and the people that we're fighting against and you see that their mindset you realize we're not going to change the way that they think the only thing they hate more than each other is us so they were all fighting us but if we weren't there there these groups were going to fight each other they were not going to get along so it felt like this was some kind of a disease that would eventually spread and take over the world so when i came home and there was kids running around playing in their yards people acting like nothing was going on it seemed like disneyland like it seemed fake it seemed like Iraq was the reality, and this was just, this was fake. This was Disneyland. So when I heard noises loud, a door slamming, a garbage can being dropped would all like trigger me, and I'd become like super heightened state of arousal. Like, what, what was that like? And then my heart starts racing, and I couldn't relax, and, you know, I'm expecting something bad to happen. It's almost like I'm waiting for this to shatter this this beautiful view of peace and serenity to just be destroyed by explosions and bombs and gunfire and it's it's almost like when that happens that that's what i'm thinking okay here it is it's finally happened because it's hard to accept the reality that everything's okay like you're fine you don't have to react that way gotcha now let's transfer into business i mean that was quite an interesting conversation i didn't know we would go there but (laughs) That would, that's okay. So your business with your dog training, what does it, just tell me a little bit about it. Okay. What do you train? How do, what is the process? How you got started? Whatever you want to go with that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we do, uh, we do boot camps primarily where the dog comes and stays with us. I own a eight acre farm and we have a big building on it that we, uh, the dogs are housed in. We have a big training room in there. So if it's rainy, cold, hot. We have an air-conditioned, heated area that we can train. When it's nice out, we can go out on the land. We have training fields, things like that. While the dog is with us, we work on, and we're different than a lot of other trainers. A lot of trainers will focus on obedience to work with behavioral issues. In my opinion, this actually hides a lot of problems that the dog has. So we focus on rehabilitating, working through behavioral issues before we do the obedience. So if the dog is aggressive, reactive, fearful, timid, um, whatever, whatever your dog's dealing with, we work on, so building confidence, socialization, working on environmental work, getting the dog comfortable, relaxed, confident around all kinds of people, sights, smells, sounds, textures, surfaces. We want them good in all those different locations before we do the obedience. So we do food games. We have an obstacle course. We, uh, we, we do games where they engage with us and get excited to 
be with us. They build a relationship with us. And once we have them where we want them to be, they're in a good mental state, they're confident and relaxed and having fun with us, then we work on the obedience. And we finish the obedience with a high level of off-leash obedience. So basically, we expect the dog will be able to go to a ball game, a parade, a festival, completely off-leash and ignore everything that's going on and pay attention to you. And what kind of time frame does that take? We do a three-week boot camp. So they're with us for three weeks. If it takes longer, it doesn't cost any more. The reason we did that, we used to do as long as, I think we used to have like an eight-week boot camp when we first started because we were trying to figure this whole thing out. And you'd have like this really food-motivated, friendly, confident uh, dog, you know, a golden retriever that in three weeks, it's totally finished. It's off-leash you know, they paid for eight weeks. So we keep this dog for another five weeks, even though it's ready to go. Right. So we said, well, let's, let's stop doing that. Let's drop it to three weeks. And then if a dog needs more time, we just don't charge any more for that. So it's three weeks and, and we've had dogs, you know, up to seven, eight weeks that had very, very, uh, a lot of behavioral issues that we, it took more time to work through because we're not going to, we don't like to have a deadline because I don't want to force a dog. I try to force a dog because then you're going to put all kinds of pressure on them. They're not going to be confident. They're not going to have fun. We want them to be engaged, happy, and have a good relationship with us. As a business model, how many, how many dogs can you handle at a time? So we take about 18 and we have six trainers. So we're about three dog, a ratio of three dogs per trainer. Okay. And, uh, and our, there's a lot of different people that have different business models in the dog industry. There are people that just get more and more dogs. Like I, okay. Like I know someone that takes 300 dogs, not training all of them, but they, they board and, and different things with 300 dogs, which managing 300 dogs is just it's got to be unreal. And you're talking a lot of employees. My concern has always been the quality, the quality of the care, the quality of the training. So rather than do that, we, when we start getting too busy, we raise prices. So we're the most expensive as far as cost. In my opinion, we're the best value. We have a lot of dogs that have been through multiple trainers. We've had dogs that have been, that have already put 10 grand into the dog in training with no results. And one thing we guarantee is we're going to be the last trainer you need. Do you also do boarding and stuff as well or not? Only for dogs we've trained. We only, like if you've trained a dog with us, we will board your dog. While they're with us, we work with them to, you know, any issues they're having, we're going to work on cleaning those up. Gotcha. So my dog, you, you met my dog up there. His name's Diesel. I got him when he was four. Yeah. He's a big Rottweiler. We got him from Weber County Shelter. Okay. I don't know any history about him or anything, but he, he's 12 now. So obviously he's, he's pretty laid back. Yeah. But when we first got him, we knew that he was, he's, he doesn't play well with others, especially if they're little fluffy dogs. Yeah. He actually has had some issues. Okay. Yep. And walking on the trail that we have right here, when another dog comes by, you know, he has always been fairly aggressive. Yeah. I had taken him to some socialization classes 
And actually, he had a socialization class. I don't know that he was the original instigator. They would separate the big and the small dogs usually, but every once in a while you had a person come in, I can't make it to the small dog class. Can you let my dog run here? And there was a fluffy dog. Oh, goodness. Once it screeched, man, my dog was there. Yeah. And and like I said, I don't know who was the initial instigator. I didn't see it. The dog was hurt, but I don't know if it was fatally hurt or not. In that situation, is that something that you feel as a dog trainer you could take care of? Yeah, we've seen a lot of cases like that. What you're dealing with is a lot of instinct. So obviously their instinct to hunt, to chase little dogs that squeal and squeak you know it's it's like a rabbit and dogs hunt kill and eat rabbits that's what they've done for thousands of years so you're dealing with this history that's embedded in their dna basically what we expect from the dog is we want the dog to ignore other dogs dog parks the idea behind them is great but the practical application tends to be very negative because if every dog that went to a dog park was friendly, confident, sweet, had good manners, it would be great. But you get so many dogs that are aggressive, are reactive. Even if they're not, you go to a dog park, you'll see the shy dog in the corner and some other dog that's not aggressive, but stomping his paws in front of him and getting his face in that one's face and it's just hiding and it's just terrified until it finally has enough and reacts and you get a a dog fight we want dogs to ignore all other dogs and if you do this enough then pretty soon they if if your dog knows it's never going to meet that small dog you're never going to let the small dog come up to it and it has enough experiences with this pretty soon it doesn't care about the small dogs because it doesn't mean anything. But this takes time. So I always tell everybody, if your big dog has been going after little dogs or having any other behavioral issues, however long it's had those behaviors, it's probably going to take that long to get over it. So we do what we do in the three weeks or however long it takes. And then you go home and you have instructions, videos, follow-up sessions. We do a group class every month that we encourage everybody to go to. It's free and included in the program, but it's going to take that much time to continue to do the things that we're telling you to do before your dog is over those issues. And we get some dogs that make miraculous changes. All of a sudden, you know, it's a fear aggressive dog. We build up the dog's confidence. I've seen dogs that just snap and they all of a sudden, it goes from being aggressive to super confident and friendly. It's it's amazing. But then you get dogs that you go through this whole process and they're truly aggressive. We don't get many truly aggressive dogs, but there are dogs that you do the confidence building, socialization, environment, all that stuff. And it still wants to kill somebody or another dog. Right. And so those dogs are going to be, they're, they're going to have to be managed the rest of their lives. Right. Like the owners, they, they go home with the owner knowing, muzzle this dog. Don't let it go with other dogs. Don't let it go around people. When someone comes to your home, it goes in a crate. And uh, it's just it's just not a safe dog, and it has to be managed. Right. Well, we've we've managed him pretty much all his life, you know. But I did, like I said, we did go to the socialization classes, mm-hmm. and I watched him, and he he wouldn't he wasn't playing with the other dogs. He was just kind of moseying around on his own. He he doesn't. I don't think he just really doesn't know how to play. Yeah with other dogs so when you're saying you're talking about having the dogs ignore the other dogs do the dogs that you 
deal with know how to play with other dogs. Yep. So we go through a process, uh, say a dog is reactive, aggressive. When it first comes, it's by itself. So we have outside runs that are, you know, shaded and we have wood chips down and there's, so uh, an aggressive dog is going to be by itself with dogs around him in the runs around him so we can see them through the fence. And it's going to do that for a while. Then we're going to do some food games with it around other dogs. And we're going to gradually introduce them to other dogs so that by the end, it's out there playing with other dogs. We're out there with them to make sure that they're behaving appropriately because there are some dogs that get themselves into trouble because they're, they're pushy. They are, you know, sniffing their butts and getting in their face too much. They just, you know, it's one thing if you come up and have a little sniff and then go your way, but some of them just won't stop. So we got to be, we're out there like, Hey, no, 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 knock it off. Cause we're teaching that dog. No, that's not how you interact. And we're teaching the dogs that are reactive. Hey, it's okay. If they come up and give you a sniff, it's fine. And we just don't let them behave in a way that is going to cause another dog to feel uncomfortable or be reactive. Right. And I was able to socialize socialize him into our pack because we had two other female dogs, a female Roddy and a female Blue Heeler mix of some sort. Uh-huh. But they interacted fine. It was just out on the walks or in the other incidents that we had. It was always a little fluffy dog. Yep. I guess it was its chew toy, he thought. Yeah, and, it, and that can actually, so we actually recommend for certain breeds, and Rottweiler would fit in there, some of the, the breeds that were, they were bred to fight. They were, you know, protection dogs. When they're young, don't let them play with squeaky toys that are fluffy squeaky toys because it looks just like a little dog. Yeah. And if a dog has played with that thing for months, years, and then it sees a little dog and it squeaks when, when another dog gets too close to it. It just triggers that. And it's just, they've had years of this behavior of, oh, I go grab it, I bite it, it squeaks, I shake it. Yeah. It becomes like almost an instinct. It's, it's also tapping into some of those uh, drives that they have to fight and to, you know, to hunt and to kill. So uh, right. avoiding some of those things can help you know, for the, for the rest of your dog's life. Right. He's never even, he doesn't like toys. It's kind of weird. That's interesting. It's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, that is. Like I said, I don't know any of his background right. from like one to four. I have yep. no idea. When we got him, he was 156 pounds. Wow. That's a big boy. And he snored like a banshee. Huh. The, the first night I was like, I got up and I told Hiroko, I'm going to have to take him back. <laughs> we, I cannot sleep like this. Uh. But we got him down to about 125, so knocked off some pounds. Yeah, he had a little bit of kennel cough when we got him, so that exasperated the situation. Yeah, he still snores, just not as bad as when we first got him. <laughs> okay, let's get into some of the business stuff with you. Okay, to start a business like this, I mean, you're talking, you have a big place to put them, right? And you have decent buildings. I've yep. never been to your place. I, I thought about coming out in your place and doing this, but I didn't know if we could find a quiet place to record. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tough with other dogs for sure. <laughs> so what kind of um, cost did it take to get started? So to get started, we were doing, uh, we started out doing private sessions. That's pretty much how every dog trainer starts. Uh, obviously you don't have a place to, you know, put the dogs. And so we were going to people's homes and, basically have lessons each week. And then we did that for, oh, probably a year. And then we, we just started taking a couple of dogs. So we would do, I would have uh, 
one or two dogs that I would take to my house and I would board and train them at my house and still doing private sessions where we're meeting with people each week. The problem with the private sessions, obviously you have travel time going to their house. The real problem was the results. It's really hard to get people to do what you ask them to do each week. And it's frustrating for us. It's frustrating for them. You know, we'd show up and like, oh, hey, I didn't have much time this week. I didn't do my assignments. And so basically I'm there doing a private session that they've paid for telling them, okay, well, let's go over the same things we went over last week and hopefully this week you'll do it. So we just, we found it was much better to train the dogs ourselves then and and then have the owners come pick them up and work with the owners after the dog has been trained. So how does that transition look between you training them and then having the owner take over? And we've, you know, this whole process has been developed over the years we've been doing this. We have about 10 pages of written instructions and about 10 videos that go along with that. So as soon as we get the dog, they get an email with these instructions. Their assignment is to read over the instructions, watch all the videos so that they have a very good idea of what they're supposed to do when the dog comes home. Then when they pick up the dog, we work with them for about an hour to make sure they know exactly what they're doing and the dog is listening to them. Then we have follow-up sessions. So they get three follow-up sessions in their home. If they're having any issues, we go meet with them and work through whatever it is. We do the follow-up classes that is unlimited. So they can come for the life of the dog. They can come. We do those once a month and they can come and uh, work with us with any issues that they're having. Okay. Who are your clients? That's an interesting question. That has actually changed over the years. Now we're, we're targeting Obviously, we target higher-end neighborhoods is who we're after uh, because we we charge a lot, so we need to find the people that have the money to pay us, and we're able to charge what we charge because of the results we get. I don't know of anybody that is getting the results that we get. We do a video of each dog we train. It's about 10 up to 15 minutes long of the dog in public with no edits, no cuts, and uh, so you can see exactly how the dogs look that we train. So that's what we're targeting. When we first started, we, my partner and I took a marketing class and it was one of the best things that we ever did. And it was interesting because we were charging, you know, starting out, we charged not very much. It was hardly anything. And people treated us like we were the hired help. Like they they would tell us, all right, this is what you're going to do with my dog. This, 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 this. And then we, we took this marketing class and we immediately like doubled our prices. We filled up, doubled them again, and we doubled them for quite a while until we were at a level that we were staying as busy as we wanted to and didn't have too many people waiting ahead of us to get their dog in. As we get too extended out, we just raise the prices a little bit. And as we've raised the prices, we actually are treated like the experts rather than the hired help. People you know, they, Hey, you're the, you're the expert. Here's my dog. Do whatever you need to do instead of, all right, this is what you're going to do with my dog. And so it's been interesting to see that difference we get from the customers. Each time that we've raised the prices, we have not lost. In fact, we've, there's been times we've raised prices and gotten busier because it's almost like people 
see us and respect us more because maybe they see what we're charging. Like I better go check these guys out and see what they're able to do for this price. And we've actually gotten busier through this COVID-19. We've, we've stayed busy. There's a lot of dog training companies that have completely shut down because of COVID-19. We just, because we do board and trains, we just set up some protocols. So we were not interacting with the people. They would come, we would put a leash on the dog and we would take the dog. And so that was all the interaction we had. Right. And so we were able to stay, fortunately it doesn't pass to dogs. So we were able to stay busy even with the uh, downturn of the economy. We've, we've been full of dogs. So. Have you ever had a client that didn't like the change of the dog? Yeah. So one thing that we see when the owners come, the, the hardest part of a whole process is when the owners come. And it's, but it's an important part. And if you could take six months to do this and have the dog, you know, amazing. And still when the owners come, it's going to want to go crazy and go see the owner. It's an important transition that the dog needs to understand that they have to listen and they have to behave even though the owner is there. So it's the most stressful part for the dog. So sometimes you see dogs that are, you know, they kind of put their ears back or tail between their legs a little bit when the owners are there. And I always tell them like, hey, just be prepared. This is going to happen. It happens almost every time. But within a few minutes, uh, the dog is relaxed and, and doing much better for them. But there's some that are like, hey, what's what's the matter with that? It's kind of like you leave high school and you go do your first full-time job. Well, it kind of sucks. Like, it's not fun. Like, hey, this is eight hours is a long time. Why do you know your last hour of work, you're ready to be done. Same thing with a dog. You know, you're asking them to sit, stay, walk nicely instead of go play with the owner. So it's, it's hard for them, but it's an important part of the process. Right. As we're wrapping things up here, let's get into some questions I ask and see what input you can give our audience. Okay. I like to talk about a, a Tim Ferriss book that I have. And one of the questions he has in the book is, what is your biggest failure where you learn the most? And what did you learn? Because you can't win all the time. Yeah. Yep. Probably my biggest failure was when I was, I started out construction doing concrete. I was just doing concrete foundations. I was doing really well. I had a crew of college students that they came and helped me every summer. They were phenomenal. At the end of the school year, one of them would text me and say, hey, where are you at? We're ready to go. And these 10 guys would come and they were phenomenal. At the one year, at the end, we just poured this huge basement and they left and because they couldn't help me, they had to go back to school. So I was stripping this basement, all the forms off myself, and I just had had it. I was like, I'm done. And I kept like one or two employees through the winter. But this year, I, I lost my two employees, so I needed to hire a couple more guys to get me through the winter, but I didn't have them at the time. And I had been, I'd had multiple people want to buy the business from me. So I, those college students left, I was stripping this. And so I called one of them up and said, do you want to buy the business? He says, yep. I says, okay, it's yours. Uh, you got to come strip the forms. And I just walked away, sold the business. And I went on because I had been wanting to go do general contracting. So I started doing that. And I was uh, building homes, doing remodels and doing really well. And I kind of got a little too big for my britches. Everything was great until I, I hired a bunch of guys and, uh, and, and they were good as long as I was there. But I started spending my days running from job to job. So I was had three jobs going at the time. I was literally going from job to job, putting out fires. 
like they would mess something up or they weren't going fast enough or, or whatever. And so I think the, the biggest problem I had was not finding the right person to manage each job. And I was trying to, I basically just hired workers, just, just carpenters, just guys that had never managed, supervised anything. They were just, they're just workers. And I was trying to manage all three jobs myself. And I got into a lot of trouble. It cost me a lot of money. I ended up, I got rid of everybody. I, fired everybody once those jobs were done and said, okay, this is, this is not working for me. And so that was probably my biggest failure that I learned a lot from was, uh, was just being overextended and, and trusting the wrong people and not finding the right people to trust. Right. In one of my previous podcasts of Phil Gerbishak, he um, talked about hiring the person who may be less qualified but wants it more. Yeah, absolutely. Hiring the person that wants it the most. You got to look at qualifications as well. But he says sometimes we too much too much importance on people who are qualified. Yeah more qualified, but maybe don't want it as much, don't need it as much. And that's exactly what I did. I was finding guys with tons of experience, tons of skills as far as the construction side of it, just not good at management or or supervising that type of thing. Right. Okay. So let's flip that question. Okay. What was your biggest success and what did you learn? Probably my biggest success, I would say when I was working as a, on a federal SWAT team, the commander of the installation was right after the Fort Hood shooting, the commander and the chief of police. And I was a entry team team leader at the time. They asked me to put together a active shooter response plan for the entire military base. So I was taken out of my SWAT team duties and was given this assignment. So I I did a lot of research, you know, how was the best way to handle this, met with all of the managers of each of the buildings. So we're dealing with, it was thousands of people, probably 10,000 people, something like that. And so I had to come up with a plan for every building. So I would meet with the supervisors of each of the buildings basically teach them, here's how you're going to respond. And then we talk about their particular needs in that building. How are they going to handle it? Once each of them knew what they were doing, they started teaching their people and we started doing exercises in all of the buildings. And we got it to where it was a pretty smooth running program. We had exercises every month in every building. So we'd bring in the SWAT guys. They would be the bad guys and they would uh, start uh, shooting blanks and things like that to mimic an active shooter response. And then I would be watching and evaluating what they did. And then we'd talk about it afterwards. Ended up being a really good program that I learned a lot about working with people, communicating with people, because there was, there was some times that some of these guys that were managing these buildings were former Marines or retired Marines, because this is a military installation. So they have this, you know, I was pretty young at the time. They had this young kid coming in and telling them what to do with their people in an active shooter response. And uh, so I had to learn to communicate those types of things, keep accountability of everybody, make sure that the things were happening on schedule. And then I was reporting directly to the uh, installation commander, all of my updates. And it was really fun, uh, really was a successful program. And uh, I learned a lot from, from that. And what made it the success, do you think? Just because we got each building so 
like we would time how quickly everybody had either sheltered in place or basically how quickly could a building that has 3,000 people in it go from chaos to there's no targets for the shooter. And we got basically every single person knew what they needed to do. They were listening for the sound of the gunfire, making a decision. Do I exit this building or do I shelter in place? So basically by the end, every building, the shooter's like, yeah, there's, there's no targets. Everybody's gotcha. secured out of the building. And uh, yeah. Cool. So next question is, what book have you read? And if you haven't read books, what podcast have you listened to? If you don't listen to podcasts, <laughs> what influence has made the most influence in your life and why? That's a big question. I read probably two to three books a month. I'm audiobook. I'm on audiobook all the time. And then I read books as well. I was really affected by, so one of our clients that we, we work with is, is heavy D on, he's one of the diesel brothers, Dave Sparks is his name. So he has, he did this thing called the heavy Academy and it's associated with his podcast, the heavy checklist working with him. I kind of got involved with him and what he was doing. And so I'd been into a lot of, uh, self-improvement, motivational books, when I was younger and I kind of got out of it for a while mm -hmm. and this just got me kind of reinvigorated to really uh, take my business to the next level, take myself to the next level. Cause I kind of had this attitude that I'm a veteran. I've been to Iraq. I was on a, a, a SWAT team. I was the, I've been on the sniper team, the entry team, team leader. I was a SWAT team commander. So I kind of felt like I did all these things. You know, I'm doing this dog business. I love it. It's fun. And I just kind of sat back and like, I'm doing what I enjoy doing. And I just was kind of on autopilot for a while. And then got involved with, with listening to his podcast and working with him, being around him. And it really got me back into the things that I'm wanting to do now, growing the business, doing the uh, dog supply company, doing the online training programs that we can sell. And we're, we're uh, doing, we teach people how to be dog trainers that want to be part of our business. And so that really got me back into it. So I would say his podcast, as far as books, the best book is the one I'm reading now, I guess. It's uh, uh, Grant Cardone, uh, Be Obsessive or Be Average is the one I'm reading right now. Uh -huh. Absolutely loving it. Really like the things that, that he's talked. Basically, he gave you per, gave me permission to be obsessive because I, right. I have an obsessive personality and I, and I get told by my family like, hey, you need to cool it. My family knows when I have an idea about a business or something, they, they, they just better hang on tight because I'm just going to run with it. The biggest thing I have gotten out of his book is it's okay to be obsessive if you're obsessive about the right things. Right. I have listened to that book as well. All right, Sean, that, a lot of interesting stuff today. Um, how can people get in contact with you? Where can they find you? So they can reach us on Instagram. It's at innovative canine is our uh, dog training page at roughswag.com is our dog supply page on Instagram. And our websites are www.roughswag and it's R-U-F-F swag.com and www.innovativecanine and it's a canine academy. And then we also sell protection dogs and it's high caliber protection dogs. So it's www.highcaliberprotectiondogs and at high caliber protection dogs on Instagram. So that combines 
my background of uh, SWAT military, my tactical background with my love of dog training. So we have been competing in protection sports for years. We have multiple national champion protection dogs and one world champion protection dog. And so we just took that, another hobby that we have that we are turning into a business. So that's you can reach us there as well. Once again, creating financial security by monetizing stuff that you already know. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, Sean, last question before we go. For those in our audience out there that are on the fence of starting their own business, what would be your number one tip for them, your best advice for them? They're on the fence. They don't know if they want to pull the trigger or not. My best advice would be to just do it and don't think about it. This is one thing that my business partner is really good at, and I've learned to trust his judgment on a lot of things. There's times when we were doubling our prices for the first time, and I was like, this is not a good idea. Like, are you sure? He's like, just trust me. We did it. It was phenomenal. And so there's a lot of times when when he's really good at, hey, we're just going to do this. And so I've learned to trust him. So my advice, just just do it. Like, just don't think about it. Just do it. You can do a, a side hustle. That's what we did. We started as a side hustle. So you're not really losing anything. There's not a lot of risk because it's a side job. It's not something, it's not all of your eggs in one basket. And then once your side business, by the time I went full-time with it, my side business was making as much as my full-time job with the military. And then the month that I, my first month of doing my side job full-time, I doubled what I was making for the military in my first month. So just, just do it. Awesome. Great advice. Thanks for being with us today, Sean. Yep. Thank you. And for everybody out there, until next time, go monetize it. Thanks for listening. Remember, monetize your mindset. Build financial security by monetizing what you already know so that you will always have the resources to deal with whatever happens when what happens, happens. Follow us on Facebook and at BartMerrill.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.